hey, it's me. Uh, this is just a off-the-cuff bit of gratitude for everyone who's been listening up until now. I started Relic in 2017, and here it is in 2020, and I feel like I've aged 10 million years since we've started, but um, I'm really happy that people are listening to the show and I get to put out uh, more content and get a little bit better and better at writing and recording and whatnot. I know everyone's going through a lot right now with the pandemic. I am too. I feel that. Uh, I also wish that I could be recording this in a studio and not in a very echoey chamber that I've done my best to soundproof. It is what it is. So this is, for your listening pleasure, the 50th episode of Relic. Technically, it's like the 70th, but in terms of how I'm labeling chronological episodes, it is the 50th. And I wanted to do something special, a bit of a heavy hitter topic. Um, Just a bit of a disclaimer, I tend to have a kind of middle-of-the-ground pragmatic viewpoint on a lot of relics of the more, shall we say, legendary or mythic persuasion, because there is a lot of disinformation and a lot of really um, unscientific things out there. But at the same time, I think it's really fun to speculate on how the world works and the past and all of that, because I think imagination is wonderful. It's just we should never be presenting it as fact. We are going to talk about, shall we say, a little bit crazier theories, but um, I do want everyone to know that uh, at the end of the day, I do believe in sort of the scientific approach. Um, But, you know, drawing your own conclusions. Anyways, enjoy the 50th episode of Relic. In a single day, a night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis disappeared into the depths of the sea. Athens, 460 BC. Out of all the great capitals in world history, Athens, Greece, has earned its title as the Glorious City. It has stood since the development of recorded language, so ancient that its patron goddess, Athena, actually takes her name from the city and not the other way around. The capital of Greece for thousands of years, Athens has produced some of the Western world's most influential mathematicians, playwrights, and early scientists. But of all the great men and women to come out of Athens, by far the greatest was the philosopher Plato. A student of Socrates, Plato founded the first university, the Academy, and wrote extensively on the nature of mankind and the universe. He was also a firm believer in a republic guided by truth and wisdom as forms of a just society, and considered Athens as a potential model of a utopian ideal, if people would only just listen to what philosophers like him had to say, that is. When presenting these ideas to the public, Plato composed a series of written works called the Dialogues. It's debated as to whether or not these were performed as a form of theater, but their function was to deliver Plato's concepts and ideas in the form of philosophical exchanges between characters, as he considered this the most accessible format. Usually, Plato's own teacher, Socrates, served as the protagonist and asker of questions, a man who knows nothing, and therefore seeks to enlighten himself by gathering wisdom from the viewpoints of both his peers and predecessors. Plato wrote many dialogues, 
but perhaps his most infamous and mysterious were a planned trilogy inspired by three figures of classical Greek history, Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates. Fittingly, these dialogues were conceived as a speech for a festival in honor of the city's patron, Athena. Their unifying theme was Plato's concept of an ideal nation-state. In the dialogue's framing story, Socrates calls forward three great men from three great cities, Timaeus of Locri, Hermocrates of Syracuse, and Critias of Athens. All three figures have some historical basis to them, though academics still argue over who is supposed to be who. The first man to speak is Timaeus, a philosopher himself, who muses over the creation and nature of the universe before coming to the subject of Athenian history. Socrates argues that this is all very well and good, but it's just, well, it's just very boring. So the next day, he asked the three men assembled to spice up these ramblings on politics and the nature of man with something a lot more interesting. So then Critias presents a story. It begins a very long time ago, or a long way back. He also adds a disclaimer. It's a strange saga, but every word of it is true. It begins with none other than Plato's own ancestor and the architect for democracy, the sage known as Solon, who lived some odd 300 years before Plato's time. While traveling in the ancient Egyptian city of Sais, Solon was brought before the temple priests and told a history of one of Athens' greatest achievements, a story that had otherwise been wiped away by the sands of time. 9,000 years ago, the seat of power in the Mediterranean Ocean was Athens. But beyond the sea, locked in by a strait known as the Pillars of Hercules, there existed a supreme naval power. This nation wasn't just confined to one island, but comprised a whole continent, the size of North Africa and Asia Minor put together. All the city-states and islands within the Mediterranean Sea were but a harbor compared to the vast ocean ruled over by this great country, which had conquered Libya, Egypt, and most of Europe, and was now encroaching on the familiar waters of Athens. Kingdom after kingdom fell to this seafaring civilization, which called itself Atlantis. In Athens' darkest moment, their allies abandoned them, and the enemy stormed the gates. But all of Athens came together and somehow managed to repel the massive Atlantean army. Driving them back beyond the pillars of Hercules, Athens slowly liberated all of the conquered lands, including Egypt, which was forever grateful to Solon's ancestors and thus had recorded the history. And not long after this, disaster struck. According to Plato, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis disappeared into the depths of the sea. And so the story ends. Because of the subsidence of the earth, a network of impenetrable sandbars and shoals was left behind in the continents submerging, preventing anyone from going beyond the Pillars of Hercules and exploring whatever lay out there in the mysterious Great Ocean. In the following centuries, scholars, philosophers, seafarers, and charlatans alike have all ventured out into that ocean in search of the sunken empire. But is there any actual truth to Plato's story? Or is Atlantis just a metaphor? In part one of this two-part series, Relic takes on one of the most mythic of unsolved mysteries, the lost continent of Atlantis. 
schools of fish weaving in and out of broken statuary and crumbling columns, underwater vents belching smoke, coiling around lopsided marble temples, bronze age weaponry and treasure littering an ocean floor. These are the images that most frequently pop into everyone's head when someone hears the name Atlantis. As far as legends go, it's quite possibly one of the oldest lost treasure stories there is, predating even that of the Holy Grail. And it's because the legend is so ancient that there is such a voluminous amount of writing, speculation, and hearsay when it comes to Plato's lost empire. Hence why we're doing a two-parter. They say every legend has a grain of truth, but just how much truth even is there when it comes to Atlantis? Well, that's the question that's nipped at humanity's brightest minds since the Renaissance. While attempting to locate the lost continent is all part of the mystery, probing the origins of Atlantis is just as important. In Plato's planned trilogy of dialogues, the philosopher uses the voice of Socrates and the viewpoints of three fictional characters to illustrate his envisioning of a perfect society. In Timaeus, Socrates says that the Chronicle of Atlantis is no made-up story, but a true account. To be fair, Socrates, or rather Plato, said a lot of things, and historians are sometimes divided on how much of Plato's dialogues are purely metaphorical, you know, like just teaching materials, or if there are any legitimate first-hand accounts contained within. To be clear, Socrates never wrote or spoke on Atlantis himself. The only primary source we have is Plato. In the second dialogue, Critias goes into greater details about Atlantis, which he describes as a whole continent larger than North Africa and the area we would recognize today as the Anatolian Peninsula. The gods were said to have chosen certain dominions of mortal kind to rule over. Hephaestus and Athena ruled Athens, and Poseidon, god of the sea, was granted the island of Atlantis. The whole continent was said to be fertile in plains and mountainous, but its most unique geographical features encompassed the ruling capital. Picture alternating rings of water and land, concentric circles that served as moats and landmasses. Atlantis was named for its founding king, Atlas, who gave his name to the Atlantic Ocean. The only specific fauna mentioned living on Atlantis are elephants, though many creatures were said to live there as well. Atlantis was rich in metals and minerals, including a substance that might sound familiar to video gamers or RPG enthusiasts, orichalcum. It's debated whether or not this was a fictional metal or the name of a unique alloy that actually existed, but it was supposedly the metal that lined the rooftops of the island's most important buildings. Included among these was the magnificent temple dedicated to Poseidon. This temple contained great golden statues and was lined with ivory and silver, surrounded by a wall of solid gold. The population of Atlantis was numerous, and they had many amenities such as horse racing tracks, bathhouses, and harbors. Plato does not mention any sort of advanced technology or power sources, say elevators, electricity, or something that might seem out of place within the Athens of his time, but he says that the people there did live among all kinds of luxuries, and had a very powerful and advanced military, advanced enough anyway that it supposedly conquered most of the known world. There isn't much documented on the religion of the Atlanteans, other than their patron deity was Poseidon, which makes sense as they were an island people. But Plato does mention that their rituals involved the veneration and chasing of bulls, which is unique and does tie into some theories on the real-world cultures that may have inspired Atlantis. In summary, 
Atlantis had it good. Perhaps too good. Far from peaceful, the Atlanteans were warlike invaders. In ancient Greek, hubris or arrogance is tantamount to sin, and is often met with punishment from the gods. We know that the downfall of Atlantis began with their invasion of Athens. They were repelled, and other city-states joined in the rebellion. Then the Atlantean forces were driven back. But the Critias dialogue gives us more of a, shall we say, behind-the-scenes look on just what happened before the city was infamously destroyed in a single day and night of misfortune. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that the next part is definitely more on the legendary side of things, as it involves the Greek gods. Seeing the Atlanteans wage war, Zeus decided to punish them for their wicked ways. However, and this is what's interesting, Plato does not specify an outright destruction. He writes that Zeus observed this noble race lying in this abject state and resolved to punish them and to make them more careful and harmonious as a result of their chastisement. To this end, he called all the gods to the most honored abode, which stands in the middle of the universe and looks down upon all that has a share in generation. And when he had gathered them together, he said, And that's it. Critias literally stops just as Zeus is about to declare what is probably a major revelation. The rest of the dialogue ends at this point, and yes, this really has bothered people for the last 3,000 years or so. Nobody knows why Plato just stops here, or why the third plan dialogue, Hermocrates, was never written. Some think that Plato just got bored, or tired of what was becoming a fantasy, and had quickly veered off track of his original intentions. And some, to borrow a modern parlance, just thought Plato was trolling. Of course, there's all sorts of intricate conspiracy theories out there, including the belief that the Hermocrates was written and is a lost book, or revealed something so earth-shattering it was destroyed by the powers that be. But as far as primary sources go, that's really it for Atlantis. Which seems weird, considering the Western world's obsession for at least the last few millennia. We know that Plato's story had enough of an impact on his contemporaries, or at least the following generation. Though most of his students agreed that the story was just a clever allegory, or a vehicle to deliver Plato's opinions, one fellow philosopher named Crantor believed it was a genuine account. Now, that's all well and good, but it doesn't prove anything other than Plato was just really great at storytelling. The famed Greek biographer Plutarch wrote The Life of Solon, a whole biography on the Athenian sage and Plato's ancestor, and in this account, Atlantis crops up again. The biography details Solon's visit to Egypt, and in it, Plutarch actually names the Egyptian priest as Sanchez of Saïs. Far from just telling Solon the story of Atlantis, Sanchez goes one step further and shows the Athenian a set of inscriptions on pillars that document the legend. Plutarch believes Solon fully intended to physically document this legend of Atlantis long before Plato did, but felt it would be too much of an undertaking for his age. Some scholars take issue with Plutarch's primary sources and inaccuracies, so it's hard to say for sure how much of his writing was credible. Now, Solon was definitely real, and there is plenty of evidence that he did visit Egypt. Solon was sort of like the Bernie Sanders of ancient Athens. He had seen the rise of tyrants and was afraid Athens would go down the same road, as it was already a place of startling inequality and class division. Solon introduced a series of progressive reforms, which would eventually lead to the birth of democracy as a system of government. 
But other than this, not much is actually known about Solon, other than his reformist platforms, his protection for sex workers, and that he might have been gay, but back then, who wasn't? Naturally, Solon wasn't exactly well-liked by many of his Athenian aristocrats, who deemed him a radical. But Solon was also clever. Because of how the Athenian government worked, laws could not be repealed unless the lawgiver was present in the city of Athens at the time. So in order to ensure that his designs would not just be undone or thrown out, Solon hopped the next ship for Egypt, where he lived for 10 years. There, according to Plutarch, he was welcomed by Pharaoh Amasis II and discussed philosophy with his priests, which included Sanchez of Saïs. The location of this fabled encounter is specified as taking place at the Temple of Neith, dedicated to an Egyptian war goddess who is seen by the Greeks as being a manifestation of Athena. Unfortunately, no trace of Saïs remains today. So if there really were inscriptions pertaining to a lost continent, we no longer have them. Nothing new emerges concerning the subject of Atlantis until the next millennium, when Proclus, a philosopher from the 400s, makes reference to a book by an author named Marcellus. This book, which has never been found, is a text called the Ethiopica, a name that may refer to Ethiopia, or rather the ocean surrounding the country, which is sometimes considered Atlantis territory. According to this long-lost text, there existed an island around 200 kilometers, or 124 miles long. This island was dedicated to the god Poseidon, whereas neighboring islands were the domain of Persephone, Hades, and the Egyptian god Amon. The inhabitants of this unnamed island had documented their ancestors coming from a greater island called Atlantis, which they believed once reigned over all other islands in that region. In the centuries following, Atlantis was largely seen as an archetype and fable, and nobody really gave much thought to its historical existence or whereabouts. When Atlantis did pop up in writing, it was more used often in the context of a literary device and nothing more. Even well before the Age of Exploration, starting in the 1400s, sailors had passed through the Strait of Gibraltar onto the coast of Africa plenty of times, and never encountered these impenetrable sandbars and rocky outcroppings supposedly left in the wake of Atlantis's demise. While the Spanish did occasionally toss around theories concerning fabled locations, such as the Fountain of Youth for instance, Atlantis was, by and large, considered just a legend which you'd think would have been the end of it. Then, towards the end of the 1800s, a Republican congressman from Minnesota named Ignatius Loyola Donnelly put forward the idea that Atlantis was a major influence on civilization. Like Solon, Donnelly was a founder of a political movement, this one being populism. Donnelly also dabbled in history, though, as we'll soon find out, his methods were a bit misguided. In 1878, he left politics behind and returned to his law practice as well as writing. And in 1882, he published The Antediluvian World, a book that rebooted the Atlantis myth for modern audiences and presented, for the first time since Plato, Atlantis as a historical empire. In this book, Donnelly presents 13 hypotheses, which are, there once existed in the Atlantic Ocean opposite the Mediterranean Sea, a large island, which was the remnant of an Atlantic continent and known to the ancients as Atlantis. That the description of this island given by Plato is not fable, as has long been supposed, but veritable history. 
that Atlantis was the region where man first rose from a state of barbarism to civilization, that it became, in the course of ages, a populous and mighty nation, from whose immigrants the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, the Pacific coast of South America, the Mediterranean, the west coast of Europe and Africa, the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the Caspian were populated by civilized nations. That it was the true antediluvian world, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Hesperids, the Elysian Fields, the Garden of Alcinous, the Mesamphalos, the Olympus, the Asgard of the traditions of the ancient nations. That it presented a universal memory of a great land where early mankind dwelt for ages in peace and happiness. That the gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Hindus, and the Scandinavians were simply the kings, queens, and heroes of Atlantis, and the acts attributed to them in mythology are a confused recollection of real historical events. That the mythology of Egypt and Peru represented the original religion of Atlantis, which was sun worship. That the oldest colony formed by Atlantis was probably Egypt, whose civilization was a reproduction of that Atlantic island. That the implements of the Bronze Age of Europe were derived from Atlantis. The Atlanteans were also the first manufacturers of iron. That the Phoenician alphabet, parent of all the European alphabets, was derived from an Atlantis alphabet, which was also conveyed by them from Atlantis to the Mayans of Central America. That Atlantis was the original seat of the Aryan or Indo-European family of nations, as well as of the Semitic peoples and possibly of the Turanian races. That Atlantis perished in a terrible convulsion of nature, in which the whole island sunk into the ocean with nearly all its inhabitants. That a few persons escaped in ships and on rafts, and carried to the nations east and west the tidings of the appalling catastrophe, which has survived to our own time in the flood and deluge legends of the different nations of the old and new worlds. All of which sounds like a plot from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but that's what he wrote. Charles Darwin was sent a copy of the antediluvian world, and though he was firmly skeptical of Donnelly's claims, he found it, nevertheless, an interesting read. And that sentence encapsulates the spirit of what kept the Atlantis legend alive for the next 100 years, because whether or not you believed it existed, it was still a very intriguing story. But regardless, Donnelly's book kicked off an Atlantean craze, and it may have been the perfect time to do so. While Donnelly took a secularist view of Atlantis, there was a growing spiritualist movement at that time that was eager to reinterpret the past in anticipation of a new age. Late 19th century America was starting to open itself up to the Eastern world, and Americans began learning of new religion and spiritual traditions from Asia. The post-war country was also trying to struggle with the fallout from the Civil War, and new religions were a way of reckoning with this tragedy. Thus enter a woman named Helena Blavatsky. The founder of the Theosophist movement has been featured on Relic before, and for good reason. So many unresolved mysteries and legends, which do occasionally intersect with lost treasure, have touched the New Age spiritualist movement. Helena, also known as H.P. Blavatsky, believed that mankind descended from a series of predecessor root races, a theory not only convoluted and insane, but also racist. It was later adopted by the mystical branch of the Nazis as proof of an Aryan race. Blavatsky believed Atlantis, similar to Donnelly's claims, was once a linchpin for most of the world's greatest civilizations. 
Blavatsky's spiritual revelations were said to come to her from a spirit guide, or ascended master, who came from a plane of reality called the Great White Lodge. Look, just go back and listen to the episode on the Holy Grail. I don't want to explain it again because it's dumb. Essentially, what it boils down to is H.P. Blavatsky's theories were supposedly drawn from her psychic exchanges with otherworldly beings. In Blavatsky's worldview, Atlantis was a continent with a culture spread across a series of islands that sank along with it, though not at the same time. The last of these islands to submerge was called Poseidonus. Her theories were published around the same time as Donnelly's. She believed that Atlantis was flooded due to the rise of the American continent, and the final inhabited island was destroyed during a violent clash between magicians and elemental spirits. According to her writing, some of the Atlantean colonies remained above land and could now be found in modern countries. The ruins of the empire were now located in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, a long series of underwater mountain ranges that divides the world and had just been recently discovered in H.P. Blavatsky's time. She said it had sunk into the depths in 9564 BC. Unlike Plato or Donnelly, Blavatsky introduced the concept that Atlantis wasn't just a lost city, but a highly advanced civilization that had somehow developed flying machines, something that doesn't really explain Atlanteans' lack of knowledge surrounding plate tectonics. Blavatsky also believed in a related lost continent called Lemuria, which predated Atlantis and eventually formed part of its landmass. Similarly, an earlier fringe archaeologist named Le Plongeon asserted that the Mayans told tales of the lost continent of Mu, which could have been related to the Atlantis myth. These legends, Lemuria, Mu, and Atlantis, soon became conflated and interconnected, with different movements and spiritualist groups adding newer details to the stories as time went on. Even after Helena Blavatsky passed away, theosophists continued influencing emerging religious movements, and even those who didn't subscribe to their core ideologies eventually found themselves walking down similar roads. Such was the fate of a man named Edgar Cayce, born in Kentucky in 1877, around the same time Donnelly and Blavatsky published their findings on Atlantis. Casey said that, as a child, he bore witness to a number of supernatural experiences he later attributed to a psychic awakening. Unlike Blavatsky, Casey was a Christian and a Sunday school teacher, and also unlike Blavatsky, there were eyewitnesses who genuinely believed Casey did, or at least knew things, that were otherwise very hard to explain. Casey would often fall into trances, and during these hypnagogic states, he'd become aware of situations or events he couldn't have possibly known otherwise. Unusually, and perhaps adding to his credibility, Casey did not immediately profit off of his clairvoyance. He actually became moderately successful for inventing a card game called Pit. But the strange experiences he'd accumulated during his younger years, in which famous traveling hypnotists had examined Casey's trances, began to reach the ears of his neighbors. Many came to Edgar Casey with problems or requests that they believed only his unusual abilities could cure. Researchers into metaphysics also sought his assistance, and Casey, who genuinely wanted to help people, was convinced he had some sort of talent that might benefit the world. 
From a skeptical viewpoint, it's easy to see why Edgar Cayce delved more and more into spirituality. Believers in psychic phenomena, who presented themselves as educated professionals, would feed into his pre-existing beliefs, and Cayce managed to convince them that his powers were authentic. It was kind of a cycle, but Cayce was not a malicious person, and by all accounts, he was just curious about the extent of the human consciousness and how the physical world might connect to the spiritual. So where does Atlantis come into the picture? Well, as Casey started to embrace mysticism and esoteric teachings, he theorized that his powers came from his subconscious mind connecting with something called the Akashic Records. This terminology comes from Helena Blavatsky's Theosophist Movement, and basically it postulates that all of humanity's collective knowledge, past, present, and future, is contained within a sort of spiritual data bank that humankind can sometimes tap into and, well, download. Unfortunately, Blavatsky's influences began to creep into Casey's Atlantean worldview, including the more racist aspects. Casey placed Atlantis between the Gulf of Mexico and the Mediterranean, but he also said that evidences of this lost civilization are to be found in the Pyrenees and Morocco on the one hand, British Honduras, Yucatan, and America upon the other. He believed that vestiges of the Atlantean continent could be found in the Bahamas, specifically near an island known as Bimini, which, I will point out, was one of the alleged whereabouts of the Fountain of Youth. Casey believed that Bimini was not an island back then, but an occupied mountaintop region of the Atlantean Empire that connected with the island of Poseida, which sounds similar to Blavatsky's island of Poseidonus. In Casey's Atlantis mythos, the Lost Empire was, in actuality, the first human civilization, which possessed technology more advanced than the modern world. The Atlanteans accomplished this by using crystals to manipulate quantum physics. They also used steam power, which paints the picture of a society that might resemble a fusion of steampunk and ancient Egypt. In addition to this crystal technology, the Atlanteans had mastered silicon and fabricated their own versions of computer chips. Casey theorized that the artifact known as the Crystal Skull was a remnant of Atlantean technology and could be accessed in the way we might access a databank. On top of all this, the Atlanteans were also psychically advanced people who used telepathy and astral projection. In a major divergence from Plato, Casey believed that Atlantis was not exactly destroyed overnight, but suffered a series of calamities over time. The first major catastrophe was when Atlantis's enormous crystal-powered generator overloaded, resulting in an environment going haywire and flooding many portions of the continent. The final downfall came about during a conflict of ideals between the warring elite, which resulted in many Atlantean refugees leaving the island to found Egypt. The biblical flood of Noah, according to Casey, was actually the end result of Atlantis sinking below the depths of the ocean after the warring factions tried to make use of a crystal-powered weapon called the Firestone. Casey thought that the ocean levels were 300 years lower than they are now, around the time of the last ice age when Atlantis flourished. On the island of Poseida could be found a temple, and in this temple was a hall of records which sank along with the rest of the continent and is now covered by the slime of ages. However, there existed a sister library created by the refugees of Atlantis, and this library 
was actually located underneath the Sphinx, where it would one day be rediscovered. Casey also believed ruins of Atlantis itself would be found at the end of the 1960s. Later in his life, Edgar Casey would go on to introduce the concept of crystal healing, or the physical application of crystals as medical devices. He also opened up a business selling herbs and natural remedies, essentially becoming the father of homeopathy. So there you have it. Atlantis is the reason why your hippie aunt always wears a quartz necklace and why we have detoxifying tea. Though Casey was not the last psychic or pseudo-historian to present another theory on the lost continent, he remains the most influential. But most scientists and historians have long discredited his theories as being pseudoscience. Still, this doesn't explain why some people are so dead set on searching for the whereabouts of the lost continent. Edgar Casey's visions of crystal weaponry and psychic warriors should have been enough to put the notion of a sunken city to bed. But true believers, who were able to set aside the implausible from the realistic, pointed to another mythological city, Troy. Troy was the setting of one of the most famous surviving ancient literary works, the Iliad. It was a story about a mighty city that challenged a confederation of Greek states, had dealings with the gods of myth, and experienced a poetic defeat thanks to the infiltration of the Trojan horse. Empires fell or overtook other empires, and over time, scholars and critics took the stance that the city of Troy was just a myth. Then, at the end of the 1800s, shortly before the Atlantis debate resurfaced, a family of English immigrants discovered remnants of an old Roman settlement in a hill near their homestead in Turkey. The members of the family tried to reach out to the British Museum, thinking they'd stumbled upon the ruins of Troy, but the museum refused on the basis that a lost legendary city buried in the dirt beneath a hill was a ridiculous notion. After a German businessman and archaeology enthusiast heard these rumors, he traveled to Turkey and funded a dig himself. The excavation uncovered a series of ruins, remnants of cities built over other cities, and all of this matched up to the timeline of what historians knew of legendary Troy. Only, it wasn't a legend anymore. The geography, the data, it all lined up. And Troy, once thought just a myth for several millennia, was confirmed as an actual historical place. And it was right under our feet the whole time. Jump to the 1960s. Almost 30 years after Casey had passed away, divers in the Bahamas discovered something unusual while exploring the coast of North Bimini Island. The remnants of what appeared to be a man-made stone corridor or wall matching no known architecture in that region of the world. It was discovered on September 2nd, 1968, exactly where Casey predicted, exactly when he predicted. Suddenly, the approach to the legend of the lost continent of Atlantis changed. No longer were people searching for Atlantis in the history books, but on the actual seafloor.
Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to send me some platonic love, you can rate and review Relic in Apple Podcasts. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasure that can't fit into a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, we go in search of Atlantis for real. The adventure continues. <laughs>